Welcome to Newer Church with Corey Turner. We pray you encounter God and become more like Jesus through this message. To find out more, visit us at numa.church. First Chronicles 13 is where we're going to begin. We're going to look at three passages tonight. And I'm going to read from verses 1 to 4. And it says this, David consulted with the commanders of thousands and of hundreds with every leader. How many say that's a lot of people? And David said to all the assembly of Israel, if it seems good to you and from the Lord our God, let us send abroad to our brothers who remain in all the lands of Israel, as well as to the priests and Levites in the cities that have pasture lands that they may be gathered to us. Then let us bring again. Everybody say bring again. Everybody say bring again. Let us bring again the ark of our God to us. For we did not seek it in the days of Saul. All the assembly agreed to do so, for the thing was right in the eyes of all the people. I want to speak to you tonight on bring back the presence. Bring back the presence. One of the greatest heroes of faith in the scriptures is King David. And David is my favourite hero of the faith, my favourite Bible character. And he was a mighty man of God, but he had a lot of vulnerabilities about him. He was a worship warrior. He was a poet prophet. He slew giants, but could play the harp very well. He sent demons running. When he ministered on the harp and with music, it soothed people's souls. It shifted atmospheres. He put pen to paper. He wrote songs. He wrote psalms. He wrote in his journal to the Lord that has been recorded throughout the Word of God, his relationship with God. The book of Acts says that he only died after he served the purposes of God in his generation. Let it be said of us that we are only going to breathe our last breath until after we've served the purposes of God in our generation. David received the greatest commendation in the Bible that anyone could receive. God said of David, you are a man after my own heart. And yet we read in the life of David all sorts of vulnerabilities and challenges. One of them was his libido. He had the libido of a lion. So much so, this is what the Bible records. The Bible's wilder than Hollywood. Seriously. So much so that on his deathbed, in order to test whether he was near death or not, some of you Bible scholars know where I'm going with this, they grabbed a virgin and put it in his bed to see what he would do. Now, isn't the Bible wild or what? Some of you are blushing. That's in your Bible? And when he didn't react, they said, he's definitely dying. The Bible's crazy. You don't need to watch Hollywood. Just read your Bible. He was a passive father. 
He didn't confront issues in his home. He allowed things to be tolerated and stuff to happen that he should have dealt with. And it's the paradox and oxymoron that you can be such a warrior on the battlefield and slay Goliath and yet you can't slay Goliath in your own backyard. God loved David's love for him so much that he made a covenant with him. And he said, one of your sons shall sit on your throne and so too through the generational line. If your sons will honour me and honour the covenant that I'm making with you and with them, you'll never cease to have a king on the throne after your line, after your seed. And the Bible tells us that King Jesus is the fulfilment of that covenantal promise to a man after God's own heart sitting on the throne of David. And every other leader after David was measured by David's passion for God, his love for God, his commitment to God. What was it that marked David's life so much? What is it that drew the favour of heaven, the attraction of God? It was this, an all-consuming desire for the presence of God. The Bible says in verse 3 of this passage that he called all of the people together, the commanders, the leaders, the assembly, and he says it's time to bring back the Ark of the Covenant. It's time to bring back the presence of God to his house. After the two kingdoms have been united, the southern kingdom, the northern kingdom, tribe of uh, Judah or the Judaic kingdom and the Israelite kingdom, after these two kingdoms have been united under his leadership with all of the foreign armies that were circling like sharks around Jerusalem to try and destroy David with all of the economic needs that were in place because of what took place under King Saul's reign, the previous leader before David. It was an inconvenient time to mobilise every resource to spend whatever was necessary to bring back a box to the house of God. It didn't make sense. I mean, why, David, with all of the pressing concerns and needs that are going on in the world, are you so focused on the Ark of the Covenant? And what David said is what the previous generation did not seek after. I will make it my singular, focused and extreme pursuit in life. That I'll turn over every leaf, I'll spend whatever resource to bring back the presence of God to Jerusalem. Why was the Ark of the Covenant so important to David? It's because David had a revelation that the Ark of the Covenant was where God's manifest presence dwelt on the mercy seat. And to him, the presence of God was everything. He knew that if we have God's presence, we have everything. I've discovered in life, 
I started with very little in, in, in my childhood and in my adolescent years and into my adult years, but I had the presence of God in my life. And when you've got the presence of God, you have access to everything God says you have access to. The presence of God and the favour of God on your life will do more in a month than you can do in a lifetime. What God is looking for, His eyes are running to and fro throughout the earth, looking to show Himself strong on behalf of those whose hearts are completely consumed and loyal after Him. And when He finds an individual, He finds a man or a woman, a boy and a girl, there is nothing that He will withhold from them if He knows that he can be, they can be trusted with His presence. And here is what God did with David. He knew that there was something in David that he could trust, even with his character issues, even with his weaknesses and his vulnerabilities. He knew when it all came down to it, David would bet the entire farm on this one thing. I must have the presence of God. And do you know, all seven revivals in the Old Testament happened because a leader followed David's example. One leader decided they're going to restore the Ark of the Covenant, the manifest presence of God to where it needed to be in the temple or the tent or whatever it was that they were housing it in. And they reordered the entire nation, the culture, the habits, the activities around the presence of God. And revival came seven times in the Old Testament. And just as Israel had a decision to make, as their king came forward and said, hey, this is what we need to do. I really believe that we as a church, and I'm not just speaking of Numa, but as the church of Jesus Christ in our generation have a decision to make. Will we pursue multiple things? Will we pursue our thing? Or will we, will we pursue the presence of God? Yeah. Yeah. Right. Psalm 27.4, David said one thing. Everybody say one thing. One thing have I asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon His beauty. You see, Jesus understood what the one thing is. Jesus said to Martha, only one thing is necessary. And Mary has chosen the good portion. Paul said, one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind straining forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. What's the upward call of God? Knowing Him and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings. We tend to miss that part of the verse. We love knowing the power of His resurrection, not too excited about the fellowship of His sufferings. I would suggest to you that we are not going to know him in the fullness of who he is and the power of his resurrection if we're not willing to step into and welcome the fellowship of his sufferings. And that's why there is a cost to carrying his presence. And I want to finish there tonight before we close and move on into the rest of our week. The closer you get to Jesus, the more you become convinced it's about one thing. Why did Jesus respond to the question, which is the great commandment? With essentially one thing. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength and mind. 
And a second is like it, meaning that if you get the one thing right, the second thing and the third thing, it'll all fall into place. The one thing that must mark us, the one thing that must consume us is a wholehearted love for God. His presence. Last week I preached His presence is our priority. This week I'm preaching about bring back the presence because for some of us, we heard last week and we go, okay, that's good. What does that mean? Well, it means that you in your life and in your home and in your altar and your relationship with God and your family need to bring back the presence. Need to make a decision that you're not going to live a complex life. I find the closer I get to Jesus, while the more weighty my life becomes, the less complex because it's all about one thing. It's about one thing. There are lots of things I can do, lots of things people want me to do, but there's one thing I want to do. And that's to love him well. Something tells me if we get that right, all these other things will take care of itself. I think the church and leaders have gotten distracted answering questions Jesus isn't even asking. I've had so so much pressure in previous seasons to make a statement about this, make a statement about that. The two times I did, I regret it. And yet we're in relationship with a Jesus, a Messiah, who when he was questioned and falsely accused, said nothing. He said nothing. He did nothing except obey with passionate love the Father's will for his life. And he let everything else be what it is. And he's... He had the last say on the day of resurrection but he, and he's still having the last say but he will come back and have the last say. Sometimes we feel like we've got to answer every question our unsafe friends, uni mates, lecturers ask of us. Just let them watch you love Jesus well. And love people well. And have a reason for that love and for that hope. And watch what God does with your life. You see, I think the crisis in the earth that is taking place right now, that has taken place for the last 2,000 years is because by and large, the church has not prioritised the presence of God. Because as as goes the house of God, so goes the nation. Because King David prioritised the presence, his son, King Solomon, had a reign of peace and was able to build economically something that the world probably hasn't even come close to. Why? Because his father made a decision, this one thing I will seek after. I'm bringing back the ark. I'm bringing back the priority of the presence. I believe it's time to bring back God's presence at the centre of our hearts, the centre of our world, the centre of His church. 
And I think one of the greatest prophetic promises that we read about in the New Testament is the restoration of the tabernacle of David. Now, I want you to go with me to Acts 15. Acts chapter 15. Because in Acts 15, in the middle of the first Christian conference in AD, I think it's AD 50, 18 years after the day of Pentecost, we see that the apostles and the leaders in Jerusalem are having a convention, they're having a summit, they're having a conference. And this prophecy is quoted from Amos 9, 11 and 12. It says this in verse 15. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. After this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins. I'll restore it that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord. And all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from old. The context of this passage is that the early church is in significant transition. Now the gospel is going beyond the Jews and it's going to Gentiles. Those who are outside of the Jewish faith. And there are that many Gentiles that are flooding in to the church that the Jewish Christian leaders, namely the Apostle Peter and others are getting concerned. Don't we need to set up some extra rules to try and control this rabble of heathen that's coming into the church? Ever come across that before? (laughs) How do we try to Control people that are outside of our grid, our expectation of what sanctified church should look like. Don't we need to create rules that orders and lines and puts people in a box so that we can control them? Anything that is added to the gospel of Jesus Christ, Paul says, let them be accursed. It's not Jesus and your works. It's not Jesus and your best efforts. It's just throw yourself into Jesus. And out of an encounter with with who Jesus is, with the truth of His Gospel, with the presence and power of His Spirit, you in partnership with the Spirit, the Holy Spirit begins to change you change appetites, heighten the right appetites and kill off the wrong ones. And this is what was happening. What the Apostle James does, he stands up and in my Bible I I wrote, will the real leader please stand up? (laughs) Because Barnabas is saying something and Paul's saying something and Peter's saying something, but the apostle of Jerusalem was James. And he stood up and he said, guys, chill out. You need to understand prophecy. We are living in the days of the fulfilment of prophecy is what he's saying. He's saying there's coming a day where it doesn't matter whether you're Jew or Gentile, but the restoration 
of the tabernacle of David is gonna take place where people of every tribe and every tongue is gonna have an invitation, an opportunity to seek the presence of the Lord, just like David did. This is what he was declaring. This is what he was saying was happening. It's not just about the grafting in. It's an invitation to every one of us to be Davids in our generation. To be new covenant, spirit-filled Davids and Marys that are hungry, pursuing the presence of God. In verse 16 and 17, God said, I will restore the the tent, the tent. Literally, the tent or the tabernacle means dwelling place. God is not looking to visit you. He wants to dwell with you. He's not looking to visit us at a 4pm service or a 9am service. He wants to live here. And because He's God, He can live in your house too. And He can live in your work cubicle and He can live on the train and He can live with you on the car in peak hour traffic and He can live with you at the pub and He can live with you at the cafe. He can live with you in the restaurant. He can live with you in the hotel. He can live with you at the resort. He can live with you when you're on a boat, train or an automobile. He can live with you even when you're on a plane. He wants to dwell with you but he's looking to see who will be in pursuit of him. So what's the tabernacle of David all about? It was the resting place of God's presence. And when God's desire to dwell with us collided with David's desire to host the presence of God, God said, finally, finally, I found a resting place. I found someone who cares enough to actually turn everything upside down, right side up to prioritise what this is all about. Do you realise the exorbitant lengths to which David went to, to actually host the presence of God? He spared no expense. We're told that it approximately worked out to be $3 billion annually that he devoted to the tabernacle of David. He employed 8,000 singers and musicians. And the tabernacle hosted 24-7 praise and worship for 33 years. Someone's excited about that. But seriously, that's someone who really doesn't care what anyone else thinks. I attended a prayer meeting in Jakarta in Prayer Tower that had been going for 14 years straight. Had space enough, 500 people in this room, 500 people in that. There would have been maybe 20, 30 plus a worship team, 20, 30 in the next room plus a worship team. Every two hours, there'd be a rotation of musicians, literally the dude would be on the keys, lift his hand, the guy put his hand on the keys and, and, and the music would just flow. For 14 years at that time that I went, it's still going to this day. Something got into my spirit. I'm like, I think they're, they're starting to touch something. The auditorium was 10,000 seats. They didn't have a permit to meet on Sunday, but three services a Saturday. Police would have to stop traffic on the freeway. There were that many um, uh, uh, 
people from another faith, can I say it that way, that were getting saved, that a prominent leader in the world that we all would know if I said their name, built another place of worship one kilometre from that church to try and stop the flow of the amount of people that were getting saved and discipled in that church because someone made a decision. One thing I will seek after, that which I will pursue, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, that I will be a David in my generation that will be consumed with the presence of God. And when God finds someone, it doesn't even have to be a leader. It could be a teenager at school who just makes a decision. I'll be a David and a Mary in my generation. And the Lord says His favour, His blessing, His grace, His open doors. Why did David do all of that? It's because he was a radical and prophetic lover of Jesus. And only radical and prophetic lovers of Jesus actually get to give the world a preview of what heaven is going to be like. David gave us a preview of heaven, but I believe even more than that, he gave us a preview of what the New Testament church should be about. The restoration of the tabernacle of David is not just about If you're not a Jew in this room, guess what? You're a Gentile. It's not just about us getting a look in and a a foot in the door and an invitation. It's about a pattern. It's about a posture. It's about a pursuit. It's about a desire that says, God, I will make your presence my priority. And that will order what I do and how I live and how I steward and how I go about what I do. Why? Because your presence means more to me than anything. And David can't be separated from what he built, nor can the Lord separate himself from David. Even when David made mistakes that would throw him out of any leadership role. God says, yes, there's consequences, but you're a man still after my own heart. Why? Because your heart is postured towards me. Wow. God's more gracious than humans are. What are the implications for us? We as Numa Church, you as an individual, are called to host God's presence and live in perpetual celebration of what Jesus has done for us. That's going to look different at different times. What are you saying, Corey? We just leave our jobs and volunteer at the church 24-7 and sing and pray. Maybe. Maybe. Others have done it. But maybe not. Maybe it's following 1 Thessalonians 5.16. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing. Do you know you can live in a constant posture of the presence of God? You see, our tabernacle of David is not this house. This facilitates things, but Jesus is our tabernacle of David. And Ephesians 2.22 says, we are being built into a dwelling place for His presence. Jesus said, my house 
shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. And I really believe at this time we are on a journey to discover what does it mean to be a house of prayer? What does it mean to be an upper room? What does it mean to be a people that are living an upper room lifestyle? And out of the fullness and abundance of that, I believe that we need to understand that there's one prerequisite, there's one essential thing. And that is that we've got to be prepared to count the cost of carrying His presence. There is a cost to carrying God's presence. I want you to go with me last passage of Psalm 132. Psalm 132. Can I encourage you to bring your Bibles to church? Buy an old school one, highlight it, write in it, bring it to church. Who's got their Bibles? Just give me a wave. Awesome, awesome. If you don't, there's no condemnation. Just go to the resource centre and Bob will sell you one. (laughs) There is a cost to carrying the presence of God. Psalm 132, 1 to 5, tells us what happened to David. Remember, O Lord, in David's favour, all of the hardships he endured, how he swore to the Lord and vowed to the mighty one of Jacob, I will not, here it is, enter my house or get into my bed. I will not give sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids until I find a place for the Lord a dwelling place for the mighty one of Jacob. You know, David made a vow unto the Lord that he wouldn't rest until he found a resting place. And in response, God made a vow to David, made a covenant with David. We read about it. Verse 11, listen to it. The Lord swore to David a sure oath from which he will not turn back. One of the sons of your body I will set on your throne. If your sons keep my covenant and my testimonies that I shall teach them, their sons also forever shall sit on your throne. For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for His dwelling place. Listen to this, verse 14. This is my resting place forever. forever. Here I will dwell for I have desired it. I was praying this week and the Lord spoke to me from Isaiah 58, 11. He said, I'll satisfy your desire in scorched places. You know, often we quote Psalm 37, 4. Delight yourself in the Lord. He'll give you the desires of your heart. We think, you know, that if we just worship a little bit, whatever desires are in our heart, He'll fulfil. That's not what that means. It means as you delight, truly delight in Him, in a love relationship with Him, your desires get conformed to His desires. And His desires begin to bubble up inside of you. And when you begin to declare them, petition them, pray them, be filled, consumed by them, all of a sudden what happens is He says, that desires from me, I will fulfil it. But we think often that the fulfilment of desires is without a cost or without suffering. But Isaiah 58 says he satisfies the desire in the burnt places, in the scorched places. And if you're going through a a burning season, a scorched season, where you feel the heat of pressure and circumstance and things that are coming against you, 
then it could be that God's actually preparing you for your desires to be satisfied. We've got to understand that desires coming to pass in God don't always come just because everything is perfect. Desires come when the Lord knows that He can trust you with the desire. And sometimes you have to go through the fire before you can be trusted with your desire. Is this helping anyone tonight? David made a vow to the Lord and it was forged in affliction. What was the affliction? Several things, but one of the things was when he tried to bring the Ark of the Covenant back the first time, he lost a family friend, Uzzah, who tried to extend his hand to steady the stumbled oxen and the Ark that was falling off the oxen. And Uzzah, which means strength, as he extended his hand out using his own strength, ended up losing his life. Man's strength can't carry the presence of God on our terms. And David had to go back and he had to read the book of the law, the original covenant and work out how did God want His presence carried? And he discovered that he needed some Levites. He needed some men that were set apart. And in New Testament, He's looking for some men and women that are devoted, set apart, consecrated, willing to pay any price, willing to lay it all down, that we would become carriers of the presence of God. God doesn't need our strength to carry His presence. He needs broken worship. He needs the sacrifices of a broken and contrite spirit. If you feel like God is trying to kill you, it's because He is. Does anyone ever feel like He's just putting me to death? It's because He wants something better for you than what you want for you. And He's trying to to cut things off and get things out the way so that you would become a vessel of honour that would carry His presence. And when He finds someone that is willing to go through the purging, the costly process, He says, now they're ready. And it's when you don't want it anymore, you're qualified for it. And when you're sick of it and you're noisiest of it and it doesn't seem like it's going to happen, he says, okay, now you're ready. I'm guessing I've got a witness in this room about that word. So David went and got the Levites and he did what's happening in heaven right now where The Father, God Himself and Jesus is surrounded by 24-7 praise and worship. There's no other reasonable, rational response to who Jesus is than to get one glimpse, fall back on your face and say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. You don't have time to check your phone. You don't have time to look at your watch. No one is looking at their watch around the throne. 
Have I prayed an hour? Have I, have I read my Bible long enough? Every time I go to get human again after my time with the Lord, I'm just reminded in eternity, no one's looking at their watch. They're just captivated by Him. You mean like God is actually really trying to interrupt my life and reorder my priorities? Yes. You mean He's actually committed wanting to mess up my well best laid out plans so that He can be front and centre in my life? Yes. He's actually doing the thing you fear. Because He knows something you don't. He knows that out of all the treasures, out of all the pursuits and out of all the possessions that this world could offer you, nothing even comes close to the presence of God. And so I believe that when Dr. Ali, a couple of weeks ago, preached a message on where are the Davids, I believe that is a prophetic call and question to our church. Where are the Davids who will vow a vow? Where are the Davids and Marys who will risk being ridiculed by even Jesus' team? His pastors and leaders. Where are the Marys that will break open the alabaster box and will weep and will worship and will pour out their life and not give a rip or look around anywhere to see if anyone's noticing simply because they love His presence. Where are the Davids who is willing to make themselves more undignified than this, willing to risk rebuke from those closest to them, willing to lay it all down, willing to spend what others would say is a complete waste of time, energy and resource just so that we could host His presence. It is completely unrealistic. It is totally politically incorrect. It's absolutely offensive to make your life about the one thing that matters more than anything. You will have spiritual warfare, spiritual resistance. You'll have misunderstanding. You'll have betrayal. You'll have people wanting to kill you, to silence you, to cancel you. David had all of those things. But he still made it his goal in life, the one thing. And I believe the Lord is coming to us as a church And He's not just coming to me as a leader or the leadership team or the staff. He's coming to every single follower of Jesus. And He's saying in a world of increasing complexity and in a world that is wanting us to be distracted by answering all the questions that may be third, fourth, fifth priority, but are definitely not the one priority. Are we willing to risk it all for the one thing that matters more than anything? And if he can find a David 
And if you can find a Mary that's willing to say yes to that, there's nothing that he will withhold from you. Only that which could harm you. He will pour it out. He will pour it out. He will pour it out. Thank you for listening to Numa Church with Corey Turner. We pray that you have been blessed by today's message. Please follow us on our social media platforms and visit our website, numa.church.